Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to this week's edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me ready to tackle Scorsese's latest film and all of its Hold it till the end. Glory is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. His, are we talking about P? <laughs> yes, well, yes, we are. We're okay. talking about bio breaks. I just wanted to see if that's what yeah. we're... <laughs> wasn't entirely sure, because like, there's something yeah. at the end of this movie that's like a big zinger kind of thing. It could, but it could be, yeah, it could be dual. P dual, is also... Like, the purpose, yeah. yeah. Hold it till we, the end, yeah. We just lost the five <laughs> listeners we still have remaining. You realize that? Like, they just, they were like, we're done. They're, they they're on a bio break. They paused <laughs> us to come back. We're already too long. We will put intermissions <laughs> in our podcast. How about we that? should? We okay. should. If we go over we'll forty-five talk. minutes, intermissions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this week our conversation takes us back to nineteen twenties Oklahoma during the time of the Osage murders taking place in the United States. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon has a lot to say about these events, and we do as well. So consider this your official journey into spoilerific territory as we take a deep dive into this story, which is based on a true story written. As a book, nonfiction book, so there's like two levels of based on, and uh, you know, it feels that for sure. All right, we'll get started with um, my crotchety old man approach. So you told me ahead of time I knew about this. this. is a three and a half hour long movie, and I joke on the podcast quite a bit about how I don't like long movies, and I have some merit to that. This, I'll say this. I felt the three and a half hours, but I wasn't not entertained the whole time. In other words, I didn't feel like, man, this is dragging. Let's move on. Let's move on. I never felt that, but I did feel the length of it. And I want to just take a few minutes to talk a little bit about the story itself feels like a miniseries sort of lumped into one long movie to me. There's a lot that goes on and I put myself in a position to try to figure out, okay, where can I take a mental break or a or a logical shift into this portion of the story or this portion of the story, because I think there's a lot that Scorsese wants to say in this. And for the most part, he succeeds. I mean, I got the basic idea, but I think it's because of the perspective that he decides to use because of some of the time shifting that takes place. We don't really get any cards that say, okay, we've moved six years ahead or 10 years ahead. I mean, this is a, I didn't realize till about halfway through the movie that we already kind of advanced several years into the future from the start of the of the story, partly because we don't see some of these characters age. We just see, oh, they were pregnant. Now they're pregnant again. And oh, they have a first kid. Okay, that's that's interesting. And it's things like that that kind of cause me to go, when is a movie made for the theater at this length? And I, I know that you sent me a, a great article uh, about some European theaters that intentionally put in an intermission. Like they stopped the film. People went and did their thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do kind of equate it with those 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 folks back in like the early 2000s that would take movies and sanitize them for the sake of having like cleaner versions of them. I think it's in the same vein from an editing point of view, a directorial point of view, that you're basically taking the artist's work and you're retranslating it for a different audience. I don't agree with that. And while I do advocate for breaks in a movie of this size, I'm kind of on the side of Scorsese that this is the movie that I created. Take the time and sit there and watch it. I can't help what my bladder is going to do at any given point. But for an intentionality standpoint, I really, I support that. I just want us to make sure that as an audience, you're keeping us integrated into the story. And there were times when I felt like it didn't drag, but I felt like where are we going with this? And have we lost the the narrative just a little bit? Not much, but it did feel, it, I did, again, I, I guess I should say I did feel the length of it. And I don't want to feel that in three and a half hour long movies. It kind of makes me discouraged as an audience member to feel like I'm going in to take a test or something like the ACT where I'm like, okay, I hope I get everything. I hope I, I hope this makes sense. If you add Christopher Nolan's flair to this, then I really have to take like a tutor with me to go, okay, w- what did that mean? <laughs> because he adds not only like heavy sci-fi and weirdness to his along with the link. So what were you, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I'm with you on the feelings about the European choice to just add an intermission at their own decision making. 
I mean, I, I'm a rule follower, first and foremost, pretty much always. And so you agree to screen a movie based on the way that it was given to you to be screened. And therefore, you don't have the right to do that. And so I agree with them shutting it down. And I think that also I would love intermissions to come back. So, I mean, I'm of a mind that I would prefer it. I think the discourse around this is pretty nasty because people have a strong preference and like everything in the world these days, it's either my way or the highway and no one wants to give an inch. I think that if I step back and look at it the most logical way possible, an intermission being built into a movie like this wouldn't have been a problem and it would have affected the people who wanted it to not have one less than the people who needed it to have one. It would have potentially gained more interest for from an audience members who were turned off by or put off by the lake. I think ultimately what my issue is with this, I don't mind stories like this if I know what I'm going to get into. And, and I, I think, had less issues with pacing. I it, it was more gripping for me than it was like, for his last film, which was almost as long, The Irishman, that one was extremely boring to me. I think part of that is because I was so engrossed in the specific performances of this one, more than the story itself, but also because I have read the book. And so I have a knowledge of what is happening. I know where we're going. I am kind of expecting certain things to happen and looking for them, whereas it's harder for someone who doesn't have that to stay on task when it's starting right. to feel repetitive and yeah. And I agree also a hundred percent with the lack of explaining time jumps. That is just a general criticism of any movie, any TV show that does this. You can't do it, especially when you're dealing with actors that are already like way out of their age range. So one of the things about the book versus movie, and I'll, I'll talk about it in detail a little bit, but one of them is that the Robert and De Niro character of Hale is so much younger and this takes place over decades, but he doesn't age, so it's kind of yeah. strange. <laughs> <laughs> He's born old. It's a scheme. He like, starts like, at like 80. Yeah. Yeah. Like Susan I Sarandon. Mean, yeah, she's thank just... <laughs> you for not de-aging him with CGI at least, but still. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, there, there are rules that should be in place in terms of taking care of your audience. And I don't know that Scorsese was aware of that when all it would take is a title card. You know, you've got. You had that, I think, in a couple of places, just put like Oklahoma in 1938 or 10 years later or five years later. Just give us a little bit or add some more makeup and effects to your to your people. Um, I don't disagree that the performances were good. We'll get into that in a little bit. But I think that because of the fact that I, I make the argument, I think a, a a widespread argument could be made like, well, it's just not it's not. It's not actiony enough. It doesn't have to be. I don't. I think we can be mature enough as an audience to say, you can have a drama that's long, as long as you're allowing your audience to stay engaged in different capacities. You mentioned having a cursory knowledge from the book. I think the same thing applies to our experience of Much Ado About Nothing. The um, the Joss Whedon, bring your friends over and film it in black and white. Yeah, I specifically remember you telling me. Read the synopsis of the Shakespearean play because that will help because the language was such a disconnect because that wasn't something that you and I or anybody really are used to. This idea of speaking in a Shakespearean Elizabethan style, you're losing what's happening. So at this point, I know this is going to happen. At this point, this is what's going to happen. And I think that, that that is something that is worth considering when you're telling a story based on so some kind of source material, particularly nonfiction is it helps to assist the audience knowing that a lot of them probably don't have some of that background knowledge. Um, and a, a question I'll ask later kind of relates to that. But I, I think for the most part, Scorsese, he's hit or miss with me because of the, I think, I think of the directors, the reason he's hit or miss is probably his best quality, which is he's so diverse in his, in his, his like palette of types of movies. Now, he's got a muse in Leo DiCaprio, in Robert De Niro, and I anxiously await the day when Leonardo DiCaprio does a movie that takes place in my lifetime, you know, or sometime 
you know, in this, uh, the last five years, you know, cause everything feels like a period piece to me, but he's phenomenal. I mean, it's, there's a reason why he likes DiCaprio because DiCaprio just brings it with all of his performances. I don't know that I've not liked any of his performances and in particular Scorsese's movies because he knows how to direct, uh, DiCaprio and De Niro. And, um, but you mentioned the book. So I wanted to ask you, since you've read it, what kind of comparison do you see? Did you see going into this in terms of like, I don't want to say better or worse because those are always going to be very subjective. But what were some things pulled from the book that you thought were really well executed in the film? And what were some things that may have been missed that could have added to the viewer's experience? The perfect way to ask it. Thank you. I like that. <laughs> uh, I think that the film should have been a series first of all this this is a perfect example and not everything should be a limited series but i think that the material that is in this particular nonfiction book which is one of my favorite books i've ever read is enough for a four episode mini series where every episode is between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes basically and there are enough breaks and specific things to put in there that you could have expanded this. There are a couple things missing here that really make this a different project. And that is the book's nonfiction, like I said, and it is specifically framed around the creation of the FBI at the time and how the law enforcement of the age and even the FBI up until a point was so complicit in allowing these murders and this stealing of the Osage wealth to happen. And that's not focused on here. So what the book does is it uses Molly's family like that. The whole thing that everything that happens in specifics about Molly's family and the murders that we see take place, all that's in the book. But it's not from the perspective of a person because it is nonfiction. So we are not in it with one family. We are reading and learning about Hale and Ernest and these people as part of a bigger and broader conspiracy, right? It is a lot wider in an encompassing of all of these things that happen to the Osage. And what he's doing here is taking the biggest part of the book, the biggest example of the mistreatment and the abuse and, and using that as the dramatic through point, which is exactly what you should do. I mean, I get it, but I did miss some of the broader context of the Osage as a people. And I think part of where this fails is not like you bring in the FBI at the very end and it almost feels like they're coming in as the savior. And that's not fully how it's really presented in history uh, when you read the nonfiction book. And then also just the idea of, in nonfiction for me, it was easier to feel like the Osage were being treated equally because it was just data. You're just talking facts. Here... You, when you center things around Molly and her family, and then you sideline her for half the movie, I feel like we lost a little bit of the plot in the way that it was dramatized. In a way, in in how, and, and my overall feelings are that I really enjoyed this movie, but it's hard not to look at this and go, "It's about these two white guys, and it's another crime story," just like all of Martin Scorsese's gangster movies. Because that's kind of what it is, and how he, yeah, how he tells it up until so, the very end, right? Until, yeah. until he tries to like. <laughs> we'll talk about that, but I, I think you make a great point, Aaron, in that perspective matters. And as I was watching the movie, um, I kept thinking, whose perspective is best served here? I thought Ernest is interesting, but anytime you take a perspective of a main character you already add a level of bias to him. Sympathy. We've talked about this on uh, several several movies that when you spend time with a character and you, I think we talked about this on The Last of Us in our AOS episodes, that you, know, you have a character like Joel and Ellie who have their journey 
And then they meet up with David, who, by the way, the, the actor is also in this movie, which was kind of freaky um, and a little bit cold, <laughs> calculated. Just Very like, similar. Yeah. 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 But I I thought at the, t- at the time when I was watching this, I was like, this would have been interesting from Molly's perspective. This would have been interesting from another perspective, not because Ernest's perspective wasn't valid, but because you're absolutely right that once the FBI gets in here and once we start realizing, oh man, you're covering up lie upon lie upon lie, it does feel like a gangster movie. That became, I won't say it's the most interesting part, but that's when I think the the energy ramped up when we get that initial entrance of our FBI agent played by Landry from Friday Night Lights. <laughs> He's a great, great, great actor. And then it got really more, oh man, what's going to, you know, the investigation and really cool. Then we get some courtroom drama and we'll get to that too. But up to that point, it seemed to just kind of meander a little bit because I didn't know if I was supposed to feel like Ernest was a victim in this case. I think by the end of the movie, I felt a little bit of that, but I felt like I should have lean that more towards Molly because of how she was being treated the whole time. She was being drugged. Her insulin was being drugged with this stuff that just made her worse and worse and worse. And I'm like, who who am I supposed to care about here? And so I think when you have compelling characters like Molly, like Ernest, um, and these others that that come in and out, it makes it difficult to have a central figure that you're sort of following throughout because it makes you wonder are we looking at their redemptive arc? If it was him and Molly, when you say she was sidelined, that hurt the movie because I felt like it should have been them, like Molly and Ernest. Because the way that the story should have worked out in my head is that Ernest realizing that his, you know, this guy was just like trying to take his money or take take the 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 land and take the um, the estate. That he would have a redemptive moment of like, yes, me and Molly, we're going to take off. And I realize that this is nonfiction. I realize that this is not the the bow at the end, the happy ending. But at the same time, I felt like both Molly and Ernest were two compelling characters that, as a couple, could have worked as co-protagonists throughout this thing. You know, spend time with her, spend time with him. You know, back and forth, back and forth, because you've got his pressure from his family. You've got her dealings with her family. And when you bring those together, that makes for an interesting story. Now, I'm not trying to rewrite the the history of what happened. And I get what Scorsese was attaching himself to. It just made it harder for me to attach my feelings to a particular character because I spent so much time with Ernest. And then we get to the end and I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to hate you now. Okay, well, I I guess if that's what I'm supposed to do, I'll do that. Great. And it just kind of made it difficult for me to appreciate everything that had happened. Um, because there were some horrible things, horrible things that were going on. I think one of the things that stood out to me, Aaron, um, was the nonchalantness of the killing of the Osage, like the way in which they were talked about, like, oh yeah, you should marry her. So we can, you know, make sure you get, you know, make sure you get that. So, you know, if her mom dies, then we can make sure that that estate money comes through here. I mean, it just, it was so like matter of fact, like they were treated so much like property, so much like, oh yeah, we can take advantage of them. And even from the very beginning, when we get introduced to her, she has to ask permission to get money. Like, this is her money. And she has to ask permission and she has to call herself like, I forget what it was, like irreputable or some kind of negative thing, like incompetent, I think is what it was. And here's why I need the money. And then she has to argue with the guy for her money. It just felt so demeaning because you could see at this point in the story, even at the very beginning, they had already sort of become naive rich people, which is just incredibly bizarre yeah i think that's where it succeeds as a dramatized story is in how it it does a good job of kind of condensing into a real bullet point type of presentation the ways in which the osage were manipulated and controlled and stolen from it's hard for me having read the book because of you you're getting get so much more data you get so much more information and an understanding of why that was. How were they able to actually keep the money from the Osage by making them ask for it? It's not explained in the movie at all. It just tells you it happened, but it doesn't explain how was that able, like, 
legally to be, you know, taking place? Like, what was allowing that where the Osage couldn't fight that, you know, aspect of it? And so all of that is in the book. And so it's it's a Cliff Notes version of some of that. And then just from a performance and entertainment, again, crime story aspect of a gangster story of these men who are slowly trying to murder off people in order to get their money. Like, it's interesting. It's it's a good mo- movie fr- from that angle. But it's hard because Molly is laid up. Like, this is really what happened to her. And because Ernest, there is, I think, an attempt to really toe the line here because Scorsese is dramatizing. And again, we're dealing with a movie and not a documentary. And so we need to have some sort of empathy for him. And that's what you were feeling is he's trying to create this this tightrope for you to walk where you feel sympathy for Ernest. Even though Ernest is extremely complicit in doing what he's doing, even if he supposedly feels bad about it. And this was one of my issues with it, Patrick, is because we get to the end, like you said, and it's very clear Nobody's supposed to feel sorry for Ernest, but during the movie, you're kind of, you're given a character that is presented in a way where the movie urges you to wonder if you should totally hate him or not. Yeah. When the reality is, he was simple-minded. Was he somewhat manipulated and coerced by his uncle? Yes. Did he willingly, knowingly commit the crimes that he did and helped to kill literal family members of his wife? Yes. Like, what? What is? in what way are we supposed to sympathize with this man? I, I kind of yeah. found it frustrating because Molly in the movie is... There's nothing in the movie that shows me why Molly would ever fall in love with this man and why she would stay with him. Why she would be so, so absolutely... Uh, committed to this relationship after what she sees of him throughout. And that was a struggle for me because I was like, "There's why did it take you until the very end of this film to then recognize that he's a bad man? Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that, again, when we come to a Cliff Notes, like I, I the director, have excluded this for time or excluded this because it's not really fitting into my narrative and make it longer. This is one of those things. You have a couple and I love the performances. Like between him and Molly, I fell in love with them as a couple, like as a as a couple of actors, not necessarily as a love interest necessarily. This is not like he's going to put her on a Titanic and say I'm the king of the world or necessarily, but you've got this this couple who I wanted to believe that in his naivety, Ernest loved Molly beyond everything else. It bothered me, I think like it bothered you, that he was so willing to just off her family, off her sister and her husband. And there's a scene in particular where it's the it's sort of the nonchalant violence that Scorsese is known for, but he does it in such a non-over-the-top way at this point. It's when after the explosion you see Ernest, uh, one of my favorite facial expressions he makes is one that I think is sort of mimicking uh, Hale. So De Niro, you know, when, when De Niro makes a face, like he's, like, he's got that like frown where his mouth turns like upside down almost. Um, Ernest has that throughout the movie where he's like, it's a struggle face. Like he's struggling with all this. What I got from the scene where he comes up on the explosion was a sense of like, what did I do? Why, why did this happen? This shouldn't have happened. But what I struggled with is that he never had agency he never took that agency and said, no, I won't do this. Like there was a moment during the whole FBI fourth part of the movie where um, Tom White, Jesse Plemons character, is convincing him to testify. And he ends up getting coerced by Hale and his legal people to say, no, that's not right. Uh, I think like Hamilton played by Brendan Fraser, uh, Fraser comes in and tells him, that's what that's not what happened. You know, he beat you. He beat you, even though he didn't. And I I just at that point in the movie, I'm like, is he that simple minded that or that weak minded that he'll just do whatever? 
And so I had that conflict of like, I, I don't, I sort of, I feel sorry for you, but I'm not sympathetic. Like, I feel sorry that you couldn't through all of this go and protect your wife, not even her family, but protect your wife. Like at some point when he was being asked to sign the contract, I was like, this is your moment. This is your moment. But no, he failed and failed and failed again. And so if that was Scorsese's point was that Ernest would never be a redemptive character. He would never have a redemptive arc. I'm cool with that. But you're telling me this like near the very end. Like at some point, none of what he was experiencing with the, with the deaths of all these people, these family members, ever told me that he was bothered by it until it got to, to Molly, until it got to her sister, like really like, oh my gosh, like literally geographically, it was across the street or down the road. And I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that. What was it about that moment that took him there? And I think it relates back to what you're talking about. We didn't get enough time with him and Molly to figure out what they, what they saw in each other. Like he loved her, I think, but he loved her money. Like, I don't think he ever, he says it repeatedly. I love money and I love drinking. Like he, I love women. Like he doesn't seem to love her. This was a big sticking point to me is that whole moment on the stand. He claims he loves her and maybe not. This is not like a a knock on the movie, but just on the story. It's an interesting thing to explore is that he is still unable to confess that he poisoned her. But I, I enjoy seeing and evaluating how Hollywood filmmakers or filmmakers of any kind, I guess not necessarily those encrenched in Hollywood, depict what they believe is characters in love. And to me, it's not love if you're murdering your wife's family members, period. You're not loving your wife. That's a t-shirt right there. <laughs> it's not love if you're murdering your family. <laughs> you're right. Exactly. <laughs> but like, that's that's the difference I see. Like, I can't get behind, oh, he loved her, but. No, he didn't love her. Love is an action. If he loved her, he would put her first. He wouldn't poison her, first of all. And he would put her above himself. And what his gain was, or prove what who he loved was his uncle. He loved making his uncle feel proud of him because he was doing what the family wanted him to do. And so when you try to make, I almost prefer characters like Scorsese's gang, other gangster films like Godfather and things like, like Goodfellas, like own it. I would rather you just be real. You don't love her. She's just a side piece that you enjoy being around as long as it's within the realm of like getting you all the other things you want. But don't, yeah, don't try to like fake it. And this is where William Hale's character was probably the most prominent because of how unapologetic he was. Like from the very beginning, I love the conversation between him and Ernest when Ernest comes home and he basically, through this conversation, Scorsese gives us the personality profile of Ernest through William. You like women? I, I do, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. Uh, you like you like them like them reds? It's like, well, I, I like them all colors: red, white, blue. It's a great set of dialogue, but it tells us that Hale is basically grooming him. Like he's like, this is a guy that I absolutely can manipulate. If there's one successful thing that stands out more than anything else in this entire movie, it's De Niro's performance as William Hale, because he is very clear in what he wants and what he wants to get. And he never, ever apologizes for it. He never stops. There's this whole fantastic sequence where he and um, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, Byron Burkhart, Scott Shepard's character. He said, uh, we're going to Fort Worth. Don't you? We're going to Fort Worth. I need you to do this. And he keeps telling him, we're going to Fort Worth. I need you to understand this. And he's basically saying, we're not going to be here. We're not going to be culpable. You do what you got to do. It's very gangster-esque. And I think that's what Scorsese leans into with William Hale. The, the sad thing is that, having not read the book, I can't make this for sure argument, is that this is who he was. Like He was very much like, the worldview I have is that the Osage people are the Osage people are there to make us rich. And as long as they are around and they don't say no, or we can find loopholes, 
it is no problem for us to do what we're going to do because we are a superior people. Like that's kind of the vibe I got. And Ernest, I think because he had a piece of that, because he had a, I like money, I like women, he's going to get both by marrying Molly. And I think that's why he felt like he was in love with her. Like, wow, she's the only one that is attracted to me. I'm like, well, you you cart her around all the time. So yeah, you're going to spend a lot of time with her. What I don't understand, Aaron, is what she saw in him over the year, over year, over year. Yeah, I don't either. And I don't... I, Again, the movie doesn't give us any agency of why she's that way. Like, And I say this very, very gently. She cried all the time for good reason. People were dying left and right. It seemed like every other scene, a relative of hers was dying, either natural causes or because they were killed. And I, I was thinking to myself, maybe it's because she doesn't have an anchor. Maybe because she feels like her legacy, her family lineage is now... Giving, being given away piece by piece, she didn't expect, she didn't suspect Ernest necessarily because of his way of talking to her, but maybe she held on because of that person who is battered by their husband. They don't feel like they can leave. They don't feel like they can walk away. I mean, who would she go to? She doesn't have, she doesn't have a father necessarily. I don't think he's around anymore. She doesn't have a matriarch. Her mom's gone. So as she is this is my theory. As as her family members are, are dying off or being killed, she has to take on more and more of that kind of primary role as a mom, as a wife, and as a member or a leader or a portion of this Osage uh, community. And I think that for her, that may have been the reason why she stayed, which is what would happen if I left? I mean, I would probably be killed anyway. So maybe this is the protection from the inside is what I need. I don't know. That's kind of where I was left with thinking about. Yeah, it's unclear. I mean, that's the thing is that's where it's it's a it's a slight knock on the movie to me. It's not like a huge problem because I still enjoy the narrative overall. But a perfect movie is going to or a great, great, great movie is going to explain things better if she she is presented as inconsistently is how I would put it when she is with the tribe when she talks to her sister. She seems very aware of everything that is happening around her. She knows what's going on in the world. She knows what's happening to the Osage people. She is fighting with the tribe to push for people to come in and investigate and do these things. But then we never get her outside of like seeing that she is aware of it. She never acts that way when it comes to Ernest. It's just accepting like you said and i i found those personality traits conflicting because to yeah. me she presents as a person who is going to fight back to the point where if it costs her it costs her because she's already losing everything she's already like lost everything which is also maybe why you know part of why hale is needing her poison because you need her to stay out of commission so she's not going to fight back so it makes it makes narrative sense. I mean, it, it's factual. It was a smart. The guy was brilliant in the way that he was perpetrating all these crimes. But from an enjoyment standpoint, an entertainment standpoint, of the movie you take this character that is so much like supposed to be the heart instead of the two bad guys, and you just stick her in a bed, sweating and crying. For the last hour and a half of a long, yeah. long, long movie, and you're like, "Where's my Molly?" Yeah, it's it's a it's. I'm not saying I know the answer at all. I'm just saying that the experience of choosing to adapt the story directly can this can happen at times because it's they're just different mediums, different types of storytelling uh, yeah. methods that aren't. One is not going to be as entertaining as the other. Yeah. I will say this, Lily Gladstone's performance is great, particularly awesome. in the times when she's not drugged up, where she is like I think one of my favorite scenes is early on when she and Ernest are he invites she invites him in for dinner and they sit back and they start having a cigarette, like the way she smokes her cigarette. She just feels very confident, like the way she physically carries herself in that in that uh Native American getup. The way she sort of halfway smiles, like it's like she's got him on the ropes. Like she's like, I got this guy. It's it's very much like a 
I won't call it an arrogance. It's a very much confident way that she postures herself. And then later on in that same scene, she brings back, I don't know if it's uh, alcohol, but it starts raining and she tells him to sit back and he starts talking. She's like, shh, the patience. Yeah. Yeah. And she just sits there and, and I'm like, this is a great introduction to her because it tells me that she's not meek and that it takes drugs to make her meek. And so when she comes back around and she eventually confronts Ernest, she does it in the same way with a face-to-face sit-down conversation, no music, just her looking at him, asking the question. And the thing that Scorsese does really well here is he allows time to breathe without a ton of dialogue. So that scene that I like so much is sort of a meta way of me saying, this is why Scorsese's movie works in some capacity, because he allows us to sit in the awkwardness of what is Ernest going to say? He knew it. He didn't know it. But how can he tell her that he didn't know it? And I think it's because of the fact that he is wrestling in that moment with her or in that moment trying to figure out not just what to say, but to try to be truthful. Because I think just like with Hale, who had this worldview, is like, it's, this, is, this is the truth. This is, my, this is the truth that I believe, even though it's completely wrong. I think by the end of the movie, that confrontation with Ernest and Molly is almost reflective in the same way that Hale had his worldview. Like Ernest was like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. You didn't know? You were, you were culpable, man. You didn't ask what was in that, that vial? And the way that she just gets up and just walks away, I was like, stand up, slow hand clap. Because I was like, that's the strongest that I've seen Molly in the last hour because obviously she wasn't drugged at that point. But we never got confirmation. And I don't think we were meant to. I think we were meant to kind of feel ambiguous, like he didn't know, but he was still responsible because he willingly just gave it to her. I thought, personally, Aaron, that the insulin wasn't actually insulin. Like it was something else that they were calling insulin. And Oh, it was poison. Whatever. Oh, he's poisoning her. But I mean, it's it's the vial, right? It's not the it's not the insulin itself. Yeah, it's, it's the vial that gets he's she's getting insulin too, but like he's poisoning her. Yeah. It's he is intentionally poisoning her in addition to the insulin. The insulin is poisoned. So that that I did that I didn't it's not get. I didn't, super clear, I, but I didn't get his his intentionally poisoning her. Like I think it was there were times when they would say, This gets her to be be quiet, but I think I don't ever think he thought, and maybe this is me being naive, the earnest in me, is that he never felt like, oh, this is going to kill her. This is eventually going to make her go away permanently. It's just going to keep her quiet. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's the simple-mindedness. That's the word I keep coming back to for the character is he's not smart. <laughs> he doesn't discern that in the moment. Like, he knows it's hurting her. He knows it's keeping her down. And... I think he shows a couple times he feels some kind of way about that. Like, doesn't really want to be doing this to her, but he is doing it because Hale is telling him you got to keep doing it. And it's, yeah. so he's choosing his side, you know, and it doesn't actually come back and make a dent on him. It's not Molly. That's the thing is it's not when Molly's hurting. It's the kid. Yeah. The, the child dying is what mm-hmm. breaks him. And that frustrates me too. No, not in a movie sense, but like from a character perspective in a life, like it just shows me more of who you are. Like if your breaking point is the only person you don't care until your child dies, but all of the other people around you that were murdered or killed or your wife, like being on the ropes of death is, is acceptable to you, but you're going to stop serving this guy now because it has ultimately what you feel like contributed to leading to a child dying. Yeah, I think I think some of that, Aaron, has to do with a physical connection to that child. So yes, he was physically connected to Molly, but he didn't create Molly. He wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. like they they had a child together. That child was the offspring. I'm not justifying anything that he's you know, his motivation by any means. I'm I'm that's my understanding of like how he felt. Molly was always going to be Osage to him. I think she was always going to be someone from another line of people. That was not like the white man, not like him. And I think that that made it easier for him to have that sort of disconnect from her when it was his child that he helped bring into the world that he helped create through his own kind of biology. 
that's when I think he felt like, wow, this can't happen. Another thing that was confusing, that kid had whooping cough. Was that kid killed too? Like, that's what I don't understand is that I think, I don't think that's the case. I don't think every person that was killed was murdered. I think some kid like, like her mom died of natural causes. I think this kid died of natural causes, but I think it's the impact of so many people dying that it was, it was the fact that it was an offspring of his, someone connected directly to him that made him sort of turn his head and say, that's enough. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And, and the, the bigger implication here that what this whole story is about, the reason why it's important and understanding and knowing that this is what occurred in American history, the fact that this medicine exists, but no one's giving it to the Osage who need it. No one's trying to cure his kid of whooping cough. Instead, they're just sending him to the Osage to try and get him away because they don't trust. They don't trust the doctors like because the doctors won't treat them. Fairly, the doctors may kill them instead, yeah. like intentionally. Like it's disgusting. It is, and that's what I love about this movie is that it is still at least telling that story to an extent, and it, and it is bringing it to a different audience who may have never experienced the book. People who may not want to read a nonfiction historical crime account, right? They can at least get the gist of the story, uh, and. You know, I think Scorsese does something really interesting with it at the end, too. But before we talk about that, I want to ask you about, you mentioned Fraser. So for me, one of the things that broke my immersion the most, I was actually really on track with the movie and really loving it. And then the attorneys came in and both Fraser and Lithgow felt to me like they were in a different movie. They were turned up to 11 and almost like fourth wall breaking, it felt like. And I wondered if you felt that way as well, or if you saw them more as the boisterous defense type attorneys and and lawmen of the time, right? Which they would have acted probably could have acted similarly. Did it have any effect on you Or, or did it wake you up and make you more interested? I don't know. I had burial callbacks. <laughs> that, that's exactly okay for sure. And I think so. I think tonally it was a, a huge shift. So I will say this: the moment that Plemons comes on screen, knocking on the door, as Tom White, and he's talking to Ernest, he's like, "Just nonchalant me. Yeah, I'm with the uh, the federal. I'm with the Bureau of Investigation. You're, you're who? Yeah, I, I need to talk to Molly. Well, what's this about? And this that whole dialogue." And he has an answer for everything. So Ernest, like, you should go see the sheriff. Yeah, we went to see the sheriff. We we didn't get much from him. But uh, can we talk to Molly? Well, she's resting right now. Well, can we come by tomorrow? I mean, he's just so. Ins- and I was like, my hands started doing this. I was like, okay, this is good. This is good. I love uh, yeah, investigations, true crime. Let's go. And then the courtroom happens, and I love the scene that I love how it sets up where you have it's uh, Tom is talking to Ernest. And he's basically saying, here we go. And they open the door. There's the courtroom. And I'm like, oh, Brendan Fraser. And then he starts yelling. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> Nobody said anything. And I think it goes back to context. If this was appropriate for that time period, if the book says Brendan Fraser's character, W.S. Hamilton, was boisterous and interrupted and whatever, that's a fact. But when you've given me tonally the sort of nonchalantness moving forward, scene by scene, and then you bring it in slowly, and he starts yelling, and uh, Peter Leward, played by uh, Lithgow, starts yelling. It almost becomes very comical to an extent where I go, I know this is supposed to be serious, but what's actually happening here? Like I didn't, I didn't appreciate the chaos that was trying to be articulated here. I didn't appreciate like, oh my gosh, it's it's insane. I did like the scene afterwards where there's almost like this backroom interrogation with the spot, you know, almost like a spotlight over the criminal and, and Hamilton's like telling him, manipulating him saying, you can't do this. You can't talk. I actually love the fact that, that, um, that Hamilton was, uh, was Ernest client, like uh, lawyer. I didn't know that until he said that. And so that had an interesting twist, but the performance itself between him and Lithgow just didn't work in that moment. I like later Lithgow's, uh, examination when he was um talking to 
to Ernest on the stand. I thought that was fantastic. Or other people. I thought those were good. But the courtroom drama side of it felt a little out of place. I kind of wish we'd left that and stayed with the investigation because the investigation part was fantastic. I love the the meeting outside across from Hale's uh, farm and they're talking about who they've talked to and um, at the end, it's like, Hale's farm's burning. It's like, yeah, he just signed a $5,000 fire insurance policy with me last week. And I think it's I think it's uh, White that says, looks like you got some paperwork to do in the morning. Those parts were fantastic. I did not like the lawyer parts at all, really. Yeah, I didn't either. But I did like the, I like, the, I lo- like you, I was definitely involved in the investigation parts. The John Wren character, who's the Native American uh, that's working with the FBI, is a much bigger part of the book. I-, I liked him. I liked his actor a lot. I really wish we could have gotten more of him. He's very charismatic. And the few scenes he had really stood out to me, but he just doesn't have many. Uh, I, But yeah, like when they are in the interrogation type of mode, and you're wondering how much of this is even legal, I was getting almost like you know, military Abogaraba type vibes where they're depriving him of things. They're like, can I sit down? And they're like, you're good. I think standing's okay. I think standing's okay. Like keeping him on his feet and intentionally trying to wear him down. And then I love how they ask him for the truth over and over and over and ask him what these other guys have said or have done. And then someone walks in and proves them wrong. And then he does the same thing to the guy that he hired to kill one of the uh, Osage. And and it's the same concept where they're investigating him. He's trying to like tow the company line and, and tell the lie. And then, you know, DeKalb Ernest walks in the door and proves that like, oh, he's already ratted him out. And those moments were really just compelling and interesting. But yeah, the, the courtroom drama stuff sort of took me out of the moment uh, just a little bit as well. Yeah, it wasn't long though. I don't think it was very much a lingering thing. Just a, just a moment was like, okay, well, if you were asleep, this woke you up. But, but yeah, I think, I think the courtroom stuff, especially the interrogation or the questioning that um, Lithgow's character had of, um, I don't remember the guy's name, but it talks about the the cavern, like or the the um, the what is the cave, the cavern thing. Uh, where they killed uh, Anna, I think, and um, and I love that there's a, a quick sort of like flashback to that. Like it just reinforces the brutality, the brutality, and and, and the, the, the uh, no nonsense. Just, yeah. yeah, it's just oh, bam, like dead. Yeah. All right, move on to the next well, phase. Zero well, remorse. And, and the way he described it was completely unapologetic. Like, yeah, that's what we did. You know, we had to hold her up. Like, she was a doll. Like, she was some kind of pet that they were like, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Awful. And it's just, I wonder, it's those things that make me wonder as an audience, like as a courtroom audience at that point, like, how do you not, as a jury, find that shocking? Um, how do you, like, how do you respond to that? And I think it kind of makes us feel... Like at the end of the movie, this was one of the other interesting things. Like this was kind of a, okay, I just went up half a star in my review because I kind of liked the way that this thing ended with a radio drama. So you've got the end where um, the rest of the story, instead of having like a title card of like, here's what happened to Ernest and here's what happened to William, it ends as if we're finishing up a three and a half hour radio drama. That, by the way, is technically great. I mean, I love the the sound effects. I love the the voices. I thought those were pretty phenomenal. I thought of you a lot because of your obsession with like Foley work. And I it's, was like, uh, yeah, I was like all, all in. I was like, how are they going to? Oh, I love how they do the typing or how they do the 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 writing of the of the whatevers. But it does bring to light a a couple of things. One, Scorsese has a cameo. I had to make sure that that was that was that was Scorsese, and um, and I I really like that. I like the fact that he gets. He gets to say what he wants to say in that moment and and provides this sort of eulogy for Molly. Um, but he basically confirms uh, that people saw the story as entertainment, like through this whole thing. And it makes me wonder, how do we feel as an audience? Because that's what we are. We're an audience going to a movie, hearing a story being told. Do we feel worse? Do we feel better? Do we feel like, oh, that was a good movie? Do we feel like these... These white people who are like, cool, next movie, next thing. Yeah, we've shot this uh, 
this Native American girl, okay, let's let's head out and go party. I, I, I don't know how we're meant to feel, but how did you feel coming away from that? Were you like the audience feeling entertained more than anything else? Yeah, I think I, I mixed feelings on it. I enjoyed it. It was a change. So I, I like the uniqueness of being surprised by this for the first time as someone who'd read the book. And I thought that it was also well done, like you said, as far as depicting a teleplay of the time. It's brilliant, like the way that they shoot it. And ultimately, it's a reminder for the audience of why you're watching what you just watched. And I think almost not, it shouldn't be necessary. But I appreciate that Scorsese is trying to make that point and and hit it home because he's a white dude who's making a movie about these Osage murders by white people. And he's centering as much as he tries not to, two white dudes who were the crime lords that, that ran this whole sh- thing for the most part that we're seeing in the film. Like they're the, the prime actors uh, that are being given the most screen time and it's from their perspective. And so I think he's trying to both probably make sure that he feels good about it, but also to tell the audience, listen, the problem is that we take this stuff in and we don't change or it doesn't affect the the history of where we're going. And, and there's a bit of a, it's I'm of two minds again, because while I have part of me that says, you're absolutely right. What I think about when I see Scorsese popping in there and saying, don't forget, this is real. This is an actual murders that happened. This is not just another gangster story in entertainment. You need to remember that. I think about like all the true crime prod podcasts and how we like people are obsessed with them and just consume that stuff at a relentless amount of that and are fascinated by it. And it's just a story of evil human beings doing bad things to other human beings. Like, what are you, what is this causing you to change in your life? Yeah. And I appreciated it as a point of reflection, but I also see it as a point of justification for like why he's doing the exact same thing. Like, and that's where I was, I was so torn, honestly, by it. I think that what Scorsese does here is he offers a way to access a story that normally wouldn't get accessed. Not that people don't like reading books, but more people would rather sit down and hear someone tell them a story or watch someone tell them a story than to sit and read. Um, Television is passive. Podcasts are passive. And I think the reason that we do a podcast is because for us, it's very active. We ask questions, we answer them, we contemplate, we have good discussion. And I think with Scorsese, as a director, he understands that. He understands that movies are very passive, and so it's difficult to make that mention that we've got to do something to get our message across. But for Mr. Scorsese, I got to tell you, that's all it is, is a message. Your job is not to get my mind to change. Your, your job is not to get me to think differently about the Osage people. Just like when I watch a true crime television show, I was watching several this weekend when I had all this free time uh, between not even just true crime, but just these Netflix, you know, being the flagship now for everything documentary of like the weirdness of sports and crime and things like that. The reason why we're obsessed is because we want to know more about the weirdness of the world. And potentially the bad and good things that people do. I just watched the Bob Ross documentary and this is me wearing Bob Ross pajama pants, feeling bad that, you know, Bob Ross's son is not getting a dime of any of these pants that I'm wearing. But it gets but at the end of the day, I recognize that I'm not trying to be changed. Um watching the the um the Mr. Rogers documentary. It got me to read the book and the book was fantastic. Uh but do I think differently? For a little bit, I do. And it makes me think differently about how Fred Rogers saw the world or Bob Ross saw the world. But it's not so monumental that I'm going to become an advocate for change 
for the Native American people because the blessing and the curse about movies is that their primary motive is to entertain. And I think what he does here is he leans more on the education side, which is why we don't have a lot of like high-end action sequences and it's not like, oh my gosh, you know, crime and blah, blah, blah. It's a, it's a quiet conspiracy crime drama. And, all, and the, it's, all the crime is shown as relentlessly like bleak and brutal and yep. quick. It is meant to be that way. It's, it's supposed to be unsettling in how completely like chilling it is without thought. Yeah, but it's not going to get me to think any differently about how I treat my neighbor. And I don't think it's because I'm a tyrant. I think it's because I don't agree with what happened to the Osage people. But I'm not going to think, okay, are there people around me who are being treated unfairly? Well, just like Ernest, if it's my son, I'm going to go after somebody. But if it's not my son, I'm going to have a harder time doing that because I'm not intimately connected with these people. I think that's always going to be the problem with biopics and dramatized nonfiction is that you will never, unless you know the people intimately, you're never going to be as connected as a director wants you to be. And that's okay. I think Scorsese understands that, which is why I think this is why he ends up where he does at the end of the movie. It's a reminder. It's not a sermon. I never felt preached to. I do feel like he's very meta in saying that this radio drama that you're seeing in the movie is a depiction just like what you're sitting in a theater watching. You're watching something play out. I know I'm not going to get everything right as a director, but I'm not meant to because that's not the point of this movie. The point is to tell my story or tell this story in a way from a directorial standpoint that I'm directing. So I have no problem with that. At the end of the day, my appeal to the movie is not about whether it's true or not or whether or not the the facts were all there. It's about was the three and a half hours worth my time. And in this case, it was. Maybe once. It might be worth it twice at home where I can take a break and you know, kind of think about these things. And I think that goes back to my original point that when you have a long entry, a long story being told like this, you have to be able to digest pieces of it. And so if there are plot points that have natural stoppages, for instance, like a time jump, there's episode one. All right, what do we think about that? Man, now I can sit in that for a little bit as opposed to being like, all right, we just saw that person get murdered. All right, 10 years later, Molly's got a baby and we're do- okay. Well, hold on, hold on. Wait. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's where I, I sort of get lost is that I don't have that time to do that. But again, going back to the question about the end, I thought it was good, uh, technically speaking, but I also, I get what Scorsese was doing, I think, and that he's reminding us that as much as we are entertained by this, there is... There's fact to this, and we have to at least acknowledge that and not just think of it as like, hey, that was a cool story. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great way to sum it up. Um, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good way to end it. I really like the ending of focusing on the Osage people as they are now uh, as well, and that they have, you know, survived (laughs) to some extent. Unfortunately, not in the way that, you know, with the wealth that they probably should have had. (laughs) Uh, but that's nothing new for this country. This is just one of many examples of the way that history has worked and yeah. favored people that look like me and you. I mean, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. But you know, I, I, I like that he took this swing and that he is telling stories that he feels personally invested in from a, a social or emotional, spiritual angle. Like I love that he made silence to wrestle with his feelings about his faith and the Irishman, even though I don't care for the movie, he made that because he's again, wrestling with like his mortality um, and his legacy. Uh, And I, and so he will always be an interesting director as long as he is able to continue making films for those reasons. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you go Martin. All right. Well, that'll do it for this edition of feeling film next week. We're staying with the biography drama. We're going to be discussing the Netflix releasing uh movie Nyad, which is uh, based off of this uh, 60-year-old swimmer who takes the plunge into the ocean and attempts to swim. There's more to it than that, obviously. That's a terrible synopsis. That's my synopsis. It'll be a lot better. I'm excited. Aaron, I know you're excited about it. So come back and join us for that one. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. 
you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.